would you, I know you're comfortable now, but I'm going to ask you to stand one more time very briefly. We want to grab just two little tiny verses of Scripture for our text today. This is back into the Name Above All Names series. I just really, I'm here with fear and trembling today to follow in the footsteps of Pastor Haley and that amazing God's Backyard Bible Club last Sunday. Would you put your hands together and give them a hand today? Her leadership and the amazing team, you guys are so phenomenal in terms of what you were able to put together and do. Uh, gosh, this place was wall-to-wall packed, spilling over into cafe last Sunday, and it was a beautiful sight to see that. <clears throat> this morning, as we jump back into the Name of God series, this is number 10. We're going to be talking about Jehovah Shammah. Everybody say Shammah. Shammah Shama means present. It means here, Okay. Um, so as we look at these two texts, our series that we've been memorizing is found in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. Find one of the screens where it's comfortable for you to read. And let's get it together heartily to the Lord. Now here we go. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Say the reference. Proverbs 18.10. Let's do it one more time. Here we go. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 18.10. One more quick little verse, just one line. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. Speaking of the city of Jerusalem, God has brought judgment upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. The temple has all of a sudden become desolate. The glory and the presence of God has left it in judgment. But he says there's coming a time, and this is what he says. Here we go. Let's read together. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Everybody say Jehovah Shammah. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to stand before you and before this wonderful people. Thank you that Jesus Christ really is the only thing in the universe that is wonderful. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Thank you, Jesus, that you are all of those things and indescribable in the sense of what words can say about you. I acknowledge before you and this people that I cannot do anything apart from you. Get in the middle of this today, Holy Spirit. Be the teacher. Be the guide. Guard our hearts Show us from your word and by witness of your Holy Spirit what you're saying to us about your mighty presence in our lives. We yearn for that. Fill us today with your spirit. Fill this place, Lord, with the presence of your Holy Spirit because your Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And God, we thank you for liberty that's in Christ. And we're, we'll be careful to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. Talking about God's name. Why do a series on the names of God? What is, what's the big deal? To know a little bit of Hebrew and know the transliteration of Yahweh becomes Jehovah in the English. And, you know, we're not trying to get caught up into a bunch of academic stuff other than just to help you expand how amazing God is in your understanding. Because if you understand a little bit more of Him, then your faith in His greatness begins to enlarge. It begins to extend into your spiritual life you realize that the gospel is not just about Jesus coming and dying so that you could die and go to heaven. But it is for a purpose. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of hype over the little movie with the little boy, you know, who had a, a, a near-death experience or supposedly died and went to heaven. And, and that's great. Uh, but I just want to tell you, really, heaven being real is not the point because the point is, is that you have the hope of a new body. A resurrection is the hope. And to have a new body, an immortal body, in a new heaven and a new earth 
The purpose of God is not to send Jesus to die so you could die and go to heaven, but it was to get heaven into you so that you could get on mission with him and bring everything that heaven is down into earth. That's the basic of the Lord's Prayer. It said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is where? In heaven. It's, everything is perfect in heaven. Somebody says, Man, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to whoop up on the devil. And I said, Well, honey, he's not going to be there. You know, or when I get to heaven, I'm going to do this or that or the other. And you know, that's a place of perfection. We don't, we don't have to worry about things being in disorder or in disarray or confusion. But the issue is God's design is through the people called out, called the church, He wants to inject heaven into your life so that you become a conduit. You become a channel so that heaven is manifested in these earth, earthly, even at times demonic circumstances around us where, where the devils of this world are attempting to tear everything up and bring it to chaos and disorder. The peace, the shalom of God enters in and begins to minister and bring wholeness and order. Come on, somebody. That's what it's all about. So we've, we've heard from our staff pastors who've, who've done great jobs uh, uh, Alex has shared with us Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, and Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord our sanctifier. Jeremy did Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and provides, and Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. Haley did uh, uh, Rohi, which was the Lord who sees, and uh, she also did Jehovah Nisi, which is the Lord my banner, the Lord my victory. How many of you know you don't even have to fight the battle because God's already won the battle? He'll get in the battle for you. Come on, somebody. I preach Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And so all of these things are just little snapshots. I, I have affectionately referred to them as God's selfies. It's sort of God steps back in his cosmic Instagram account and he wraps his arm around someone that has a particular need and he says, come on, get in the picture with me. I'm going to be your provider, Abraham. I am Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and provides. You're sick. I'm going to be Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you, the Lord your physician. Well, this morning, the, 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 the series continues with Jehovah Shema, the Lord who is present. And so today, before we dig into this, I just want to take a couple of minutes, and I want you to pray for me. I'm, I'm battling some back-of-the-throat kind of tickling and maybe some post-nasal drip or some stuff like that, and, and it really was a distraction for me in the first service. Uh, and I just ask the Holy Spirit right now, as you pray with me, just to be able to deliver clearly, without any sense of confusion, what the Lord wants to say to us today concerning His presence. If you agree with that, say Amen. All right, I want to grab this before we, before we uh, move any further today. There are three things that I want you to see, and I've got a little toy that I've always longed for the opportunity to be able to play with. So if you'll put up those three things of omnipresence and then indwelling presence, we're going to see three areas right here on the screen. Now, so these folks don't feel mistreated over here, going to do it a little bit for you over here too. But how, how many of you know what omnipresence means? Somebody tell me, what is omnipresence? Just shout it out. Everybody say everywhere. So the omnipresence of God is the everywhereness of God. Psalm 139, David said, Is there any place where I can go and your spirit's not already there? God is dwelling in all places at all times in the fullness of his presence. Theologians call this the ubiquity of God. He is everywhere at once. He is omnipresent. There is no place you can go in distant space. There is no hole in the ground you can dig to run from God. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said, If I make my bed in hell, if I lay down in the grave of Sheol, 
Behold, you're already there. If I run to the farthest sea or climb to the highest mountain, there is no place where I can go from your spirit. God is there. So we know, understand omnipresence. But it's beyond that. It's not just the everywhereness of God, everywhereness, but it's also localized. Everybody say localized. localized. So the localized presence of God particularly takes place in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it pleased God for the fullness of of the Godhead to dwell in Jesus bodily. So everything that God is, is wrapped up in human form in who Jesus is. Now, the Bible also says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Everybody say, by faith. Okay, so as believers, we're not just interested in the fact that God is everywhere, but we're interested in the fact that God is in here. Everywhereness is God is out there to the farthest reaches. Localized is He is with me. He is in this place. As a matter of fact, God is in this room this morning because you brought Him with you. Let, let me just shock some of you and tell you right now, there's nothing holy about these facilities. Some of you would agree with that quickly. <laughs> but I'll just, I'll just take it a step further. Let's go down into the beautiful buildings down Missouri, down Church Row, and I'm not going to name any for the sake because this will be on the internet, but let's just take any of the first churches, and I want to tell you there's nothing holy about that building unless it's filled with the people of God who are the containers for the presence of God. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to tell you there have been some times when I've been in churches late at night, and it's dark, I've looked around two or three times because this building creaks, and I don't know if you know this, but at night the termites come out and throw a party in this place. <laughs> and, and there's something that can be pretty spooky. When the people of God are not in the house of God, and really, let, let's just be clear, because the house of God's not this, I'm looking at the house of God this morning. Uh, let, we need to back up and say, listen, uh, our Church of Christ friends are right about this. The Church of Christ meets here. And not just at their place, but in every locale where Jesus Christ is Lord over the lives of some believers. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, so we're talking about God's everywhereness and then God's localizing. You literally localize the one who's everywhere. You put a face on God as a Christian. Original term Christian in Acts 26, Antioch, they're first called Christians. And it was a pejorative term, but it literally, literally meant little Christ's. So if we live up to the real meaning of Christian, we should be the embodiment of Christ in 2014. We should walk into our jobs. We should shop at Kroger or Walmart. We should treat the waitress today the way Jesus would treat the waitress, even when she messes up, and still tip her and tell people about Jesus. Don't leave a track in a quarter. Evidently, the ones who amen probably have waited tables at some time or another. <laughs> Nothing like evangelicals who are sure jumping on that 10% at church, but then don't come anywhere near 10% tip or 15 as we should. I'll leave that alone. I won't chase that down. All right. But the real response that we're looking for every time we come together is this issue of the, everybody say, manifest presence. This is the special presence of God that when we gather together and we focus our hearts in worship and we make his praise glorious, and it's not just out of good music. A lot of times people are responding to music that is exciting. 
and until they grow in their relationship with the Lord, might have a little difficulty distinguishing between the energy that music brings and the real energy of the Spirit, which is the presence of God. And there's a distinction between the two, because you can have great music and, and God still not show up. And let me just confess to you this morning, we've had services where the music's been right and everybody but God showed up. And so we, it's always about keeping our hearts right and our attitudes right before God because that's the real altar of worship right here. Come on, somebody. And, and, and so we want to understand these principles of everywhereness, localized presence, and then manifest the special presence of God. When we lift up His name, and the Bible says in, in Psalm 22, verse 3, that He abides, He dwells, He sits down enthroned in. Uh, he dwells in the praises of His people. Uh, literally, when we do this, we're not just going through charismatic or contemporary church motions, but when our hearts come together and there's a spirit of unity in the place, God is attracted to that. And let me tell you why he is, because it's the himself in you. He's attracted to himself. And Psalm 42, verse 7 says, deep calls unto deep. And so there is a depth in Christ that God, God, God's omnipresence senses the, the, the welling up, the rising up of the spirit of the presence of God in a people and they worship. And when we can lose ourselves in that and are not going, hallelujah, where, look at that, she's got on, Lord, I praise your name. Or can you believe he showed up to the hallelujah, spirit lead me in. The, what has she got on over there? My trust is without borders. You know, we can, when we can really leave all the stuff the parade of distractions. When you pray, when you worship, it's like it's stuff you hadn't thought of since you were in junior high school. You remember, come on, don't, don't even look at me in that tone. I know exactly what you're battling sometimes and pressing through because it's like, here comes the parade of thoughts. When we press through, then we're able to experience this beautiful thing that we're talking about called the manifest presence of God. I'm having fun with this little thing this morning. I got to... Put it down. Now, two, two more quick things that I want to grab and help you understand before we really jump into the meat of this. There, there are two more concepts. One is the idea of transcendence. Everybody say transcendence. It's a theological term which basically means the highness of God. He is far above us. Come on, Isaiah said, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways, and so are your thoughts higher than my thoughts. So God is lofty. It says the Holy One of Israel is, is high, and the high and lofty one is what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah. And so we, we recognize that He is different than us. He is creator, we are creation. Uh, yes, I'm made in His image, but I am not He. One of the greatest revelations that ever comes to an individual is to understand there is a God and you are not that God. Okay? When, when I can understand that is there is some distinction. There, there are communicable attributes that make me like God and there are incommunicable attributes that God has that we are not like Him at all. For example, we are not eternal. We are not finite. We are not infinite. God is infinite. We are finite. We are not omni-anything. I am bound to this localization right here. This body, this tent, this dwelling place, this street and address right here where I am right now. This is as far as Michael Smith, as far as this can go, then I can go. 
This is my earth suit. Okay? God is not bound by that. Bound by space or by time. Uh, anywhere in the universe that you go, he is already there. And guess what? He's not bound by time either. He dwells outside of time. If you are worried about your tomorrow, rest assured that God is already there. He will meet you when the sun rises on a new day. As a matter of fact, right now, across the international dateline, it's already tomorrow on the other side of the world. And guess what? The world hasn't come to an end. God is already there. He's dwelling in your tomorrow. He holds your past and your present and your future. And so He is omnipresent. We love that. But He, he is transcendent. He is far above, high above us. We would liken this to His holiness. Everybody say holiness. Now the Bible says that God is a spirit. It says God is love. But the only thing that the Bible describes God in a superlative sense, in threes, is the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Everybody say holy. holy. So before God is anything else, He is a holy God. Theologians say that that's His otherwiseness. In other words, what we are not, He is. What He is, we are not. Okay? So it is His holiness. It is how He is unlike us. It speaks of His greatness. And when I can see how great and how awesome and how big and how wonderful God is, then it begins to evoke the fear of the Lord in my life. Fear meaning reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord that the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. Can you say amen? amen? Now this morning, I'm not really coming at you with something jumping up and down and celebrating and preaching as much as I'm going to teach for about the next 30 minutes. Okay, are you all right with that? So transcendence speaks to us of all of these things of holiness, how He's unlike us, the fear of the Lord, His unapproachableness, His greatness far and above all of us. But on the other side of that, and I, don't, I do not want you to see this as a spectrum where we have opposites, because that's not what this is about, because God is both transcendent and immanent. Everybody say eminence. Now don't be confused. There are two other words that sound exactly like this that have entirely different meanings. Eminent. E-M-I-N-E-N-T. Christ is chief. He is eminent over everything. He is preeminent. Somebody say amen. amen. That means in terms of uh, his relationship to us. He is eminent over all things. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T means immediate. It's like we talk about the eminent coming of the Lord. It's, it could be any moment. It is eminent. But this word, eminence, could you, could you look at that and maybe can you see the word Emmanuel in that? Okay. What does Emmanuel mean? God with man, man in the middle, God with us. Okay. The Bible says in, the, in uh, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, And the virgin shall conceive. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Everybody say Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So if the transcendence of God is his farness above us, the eminence of God is his nearness to us. He, he was unapproachable, but Christ came, incarnated, the Word became flesh. He literally put on the form of a man, became a servant, became obedient. The Bible says in Philippians 2, even unto death. 
God saves His creation by becoming a part of His creation, dying for that creation to take the sins of the world upon Himself. And what was unapproachable by the transcendent God now has walked very near to us and you can reach out and touch Him. What could not live in the presence of the transcendent God now is inviting the lepers and the children and the religious people and the Pharisees and the broken and the prisoners and the bound and the blind and the bruised all can approach Jesus because eminence is his his humanness. It is how he is like us. It is his goodness revealed. It is is this love of God that is demonstrated in flesh and blood. And he took upon our very nature so that he could give us his very nature. It was Martin Luther who said, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. So God switched places. Transcendent, high and above, unapproachable, holy, great, all of a sudden becomes human like us, revealing goodness, showing love, demonstrating mercy and grace. In the middle of all of this, we see a God who is high and above, and we see a God who stoops down very low, a God who covers it all. He's got all the... Bases covered. He's a God who's worthy of worship, but he's a God who will get down underneath your burden when you don't feel like you have the ability to worship. He will reach into your pit of despair. He will identify with you. He will take hold of your leprous, sinful hand and lead you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, out of bondage and into the liberty which Christ brings. Come on, somebody. I knew I'd get a little bit of preach on me this morning. Now... I want you to grab this because we got three things, three things. We're going we're gonna to jump in quickly. Are you getting anything out of this so far? All right, a lot of theological stuff, so I want to go real simple now. Jump next. We're going to talk about the external habitation of God. Everybody say external. What is the word external? What does it mean? Outside. We're talking about a natural building. We're talking about God saying, I'm going to have you build a place for the purpose so that I can come down and dwell in your midst. God delivered the covenant nation, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, which is a type of the world. Pharaoh's a type of Satan. Slavery is the bondage that we were in to sin. He brings and raises up Moses, who is a type of Christ. He leads them out by the blood, the water, and the spirit, which are the same three elements of your new covenant salvation. Blood of Jesus, the water of baptism, the infilling presence of the Holy Spirit. Same three things are in the Old Covenant, but they're in a natural demonstration. It's literally blood over a doorpost. It's literally a lamb slain. We know that all of that gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ who becomes the once and final Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. It was a picture for them. It was to be etched and burned into their memory. So that every time they opened the screen of their mental laptop, that image of three crosses, one over the edge of both lintels of the doorpost and one in the middle, that when they finally as the covenant people would stand in the midst of history and see the hinge point of history where Yeshua Mashiach would finally show up to save His people from their sins. Emmanuel would come on the scene and He would hang out and die on a cross and say, I loved you this much and let... Foolish, sinful, ignorant men nail him to the cross and submit obediently to those 
horrible conditions in which he would become the sin bearer for the whole universe. And he would become the king of the universe and reverse the curse over all of humanity. And all of that was done naturally in a demonstrative kind of form before people who saw God reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh to their ancestor Abraham with a ram caught in the bush. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who healed to a group of people who'd come out of Egypt and were trying to drink stanky water. God said, there's a tree, there's a cross, throw it into that water and it'll sweeten the bitter water. And that's what happens when the cross comes into the bitter water of your life experience. What you couldn't consume and couldn't drink all of a sudden, it just, you can just go ahead and assimilate it and it'll, it'll become strength to you. What was poison now will become strength to you because of Christ. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And they see that demonstrated. And God takes Moses to the mountain in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And he says, I want you to make for me a sanctuary where I'm going to come and I'll have a habitation for my name, a place for my name, my presence to be revealed, a sanctuary that I may dwell among this people. Everybody say, dwell among. among. Say, dwell among. One more time. Say, dwell among. So the temporary tabernacle of Moses, it's portable. It is for a season. They march through the wilderness for what should have been about a two to three week trek and it becomes 40 years because of their inability to see the faith of God past a few giants and some walled cities and some bad reports in Numbers chapter 13 by 10 leaders of some tribes and two faithful ones, Joshua and Caleb, stand up and say, be still, sit down, hush. We are well able to go in and take the land. One day for every day that they sought out the land and spied it out because they believed the bad report of a few. God said, for one year for every one day, you're going to wander aimlessly until this whole generation dies. God finally takes them into the promised land. He raises up a king, a faithful king, past Saul, the one called David. And David wants to build God a house. He wants to get beyond this tent that goes up and tears down and he knows the story. He's, he's been inspired by the history. He's, he, it's been emblazoned upon his mind by the stories that his parents have told him orally, passing on how God revealed himself in daily miracles to the people of God. David is desirous to build God a house, a permanent house, because the tabernacle of Moses was a temporary one. They would pick it up and pack it up, and every time the cloud of, uh, uh, by day, the pillar of cloud would move by day, or the pillar of fire would move by night, they would have special instructions with teams that were supposed to pack up all the furniture, and every one of the 12 tribes that had been encamping around that tabernacle, the place that was the sanctuary where he would dwell among his people, there were three that... That, that, that camped to the north and three that camped to the south and three that camped to the east and three that camped to the west. And if you're on the top of a mountain and look down into the valley where all of the tribes of Israel were camping because they would camp in formation, literally you would look down on a blazing cross in the middle of the valley. And at the very center of it was the tabernacle of Moses, the sanctuary, the dwelling place for the name of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? So everything they're doing, it's a natural picture. It's a natural picture because it's trying to wake them up so that when you see this thing happening in reality, you won't reject it. Thousands of years, God moves, miracles are performed, signs and wonders, a demonstration on a daily basis. They're having miracles like crazy. It's like a -a one-a-day vitamin. It's a -a once-a-day miracle. They get up in the morning and their breakfast is already on the yard out there. 
<coughs> so much so, they don't even know what to call that miracle in ex Exodus 16. Manna doesn't mean bread. Manna in Hebrew is a question. It means, what is it? You know what? If God does a miracle in your life, you don't have an ability to label it or identify it. You're usually going, I can't explain this. I don't know. The doctor said this was going to happen, but look what the Lord has done. What is it? Manna. It's the manna from heaven. It's the what is it from God. And so there's an external picture, and God answers David's prayer, but God doesn't let David be the one to build a house. He lets his son Solomon build a house. David gathers the resources, the silver and gold and the timber and the cedar and all of these wonderful resources to build the temple of God. And God says to David, you can't build it because you're a man of war, you're a man of blood, but your son Solomon. Solomon's name literally means prince of peace. You can almost see the word shalom in Solomon. He is a Old Testament picture of Jesus, our true prince of peace. Solomon is our heavenly prince of peace. He's pointing towards something that's coming. He's a natural demonstration of another one that's going to come. It was the greatest, uh, uh, it was the greatest demonstration of Israel as a kingdom under Solomon's reign. Prosperity, blessing, peace, peace with their enemies. God's presence reigning. Solomon inaugurates the temple of God. He bows before the Lord. And Solomon has sense enough to know this. He says, you're a God who dwells far off and a God who also comes near. And there is nothing, there is no temple, there's no house made out of cedar and bricks and even silver or gold that can adequately hold your presence. There's no box that can keep you in because you dwell in the heavens of heavens and you fill the earth with your very spirit. And yet God makes Solomon a promise. And he said, if your people, my people, will follow me and not follow follow after false gods. The blessing of my presence will always be here in your midst. And he said, but when you miss it, when you for a season or a generation begin to, and you know that's what happens. They, they, they build altars to Baal and they erect monuments to Ashtoreth, a, a, a sex goddess, a sex cult. Baal and money and materialism and acquiring things and, and they're sacrificing their babies eventually to the god of Moloch which literally is a picture of contemporary 20th and 21st century America with 1.5 million babies that are sacrificed to the fires of abortion every year. I don't usually get political this morning but it's, it's time some things are, are said. We cannot just continue. You know, we are foolish if we think that God is going to, to continue to wink at the significant sins of the United States of America and not bring judgment upon the nation. And, and God spoke to Solomon. He says, you know what? I'm going to keep somebody of your throne, of the, of the lineage of David on the throne, as long as you guys walk with me. And guess what happens? They don't keep walking with God. As a matter of fact, there's an immediate split right after Solomon. Ten tribes go north, two tribes come south, and we've got basically Judah and Benjamin, that are basically continuing to walk with the Lord. And they have revivals. They have bad periods and good periods. God gives the people a permanent temple. But eventually, the judgment of the Lord comes. And the Bible says in Ezekiel chapters 9, 10, and 11 that the judgment of the Lord finally came. He says, I'm going to take you into exile in Babylon because of all of this following after false gods. Now listen to me this morning. Jeremiah 29, 11 appears on a lot of cards and 
magnets that go on refrigerators and bumper stickers that go on the back of cars. And it's a wonderful passage of scripture. I love it. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to bless you, plans to, 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 to not to harm you, plans to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. And everybody stops there and they pull it completely out of context. But when you read the rest of Jeremiah 29, verses 11, 12, 13, the rest of the chapter in Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah is basically saying, there ain't nothing you can do about this. You're going to go into Babylon and the, the temple is going to be literally ripped of all of the honorable, holy furniture of God and you're going to be in exile for 70 years. But the plans I have for you, says the Lord, are not to harm you, but to prosper you. Now, if we really get that verse right back in the context where it's in, God is basically saying, I'm going to take a whole generation away that you didn't think you were ever going to be going, but if you'll be faithful to me, you're going to see blessing come out of this on the other side of it, Amen. on the other end of it. Don't shout me down now, saints. Somebody said, what's the Lord saying to you? Everything else in your Bible that you don't have underlined. That's what the Lord is saying to you. We've got to be fair. We've got to be righteous, upright, with the word of God. So basically God takes them out for 70 years and then he brings them back after exile. They rebuild the temple. As a matter of fact, when we get over there and we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is a faithful priest, a scribe of the Lord, and Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king and they're working together post-exile to get a new temple after that one of Solomon's had been destroyed, raised up again, Okay. And in Ezekiel, you've got three people that are prophesying at the same time. Jeremiah stays in Jerusalem, is mistreated, thrown down into a pit. Ezekiel is out in the countryside. Let's just put him out here around Earl or Turl in the county. Let's make West Memphis Jerusalem. Now, that's a stretch, I know, for some of you to think in terms of... <clears throat> but let's make West Memphis Jerusalem. And Jeremiah's in town. Ezekiel is out there ministering to the rural folks out there in the county or further out maybe in the, into, into uh, eastern Arkansas, okay? Uh, Daniel actually goes to Babylon. Let's make Memphis Babylon. That's not a hard stretch, is it? <laughs> Daniel goes and lives in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's actually a faithful witness to God and his kingdom in the midst of the court. Every one of them prophesied judgment. They are all in agreement. Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Ezekiel in the countryside, Daniel in Babylon. Ezekiel basically prophesies in chapters 9, 10, and 11 saying that God's had it. He's not putting up with it anymore. His presence that used to abide and remain in the temple is leaving. And it literally shows in Ezekiel chapter 10 the progressive removal of the glory of the Lord and the temple is left desolate. Everybody say Ichabod. Ichabod. Glory's departed. It's gone. And so we have a people that all of a sudden now are going through nothing but dead religious rituals. It happens every Sunday, all kinds of places. Lest you think that we are immune to that, it can happen right here just like it can happen anywhere else. We are not blessed of God because we're contemporary and they're cursed of God because they're traditional. It doesn't make a rip's difference whether you sing a hymn or whether you sing a brand new worship chorus, if you're not doing it out of your heart, it's dead and there is no presence of God there. Come on, somebody. It all of a sudden becomes a focus on the external. And basically, God promises the people. He says, but I'm going to tell you something. I've pulled out, I've left 
But there's coming a time, and this sets us up for the promise in Ezekiel chapter 48 that says, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shema. God is basically saying, I'm going to bring my presence back, but it's not going to come back the way you are expecting it. It's going to be in something entirely different and new. And what I want to share with you is as we jump on into the second point this morning, into internal. We're leaving the external natural. Now we're going to move to internal. Everybody say internal. Read the sentence with me. Here we go. Jesus is the habitation of God's presence. How many would you would agree with me that everything that was in Moses' tabernacle was pointing to everything that Jesus is? Brazen altar speaks of his sacrificed life. The brazen laver is cleansing the washing of the water by his word that he speaks over us. The golden candlestick is the light of the Holy Spirit that he illuminates us with. The golden table of showbread is the breaking of the word and the bread of God as we fellowship together around God's bread from heaven right now. The, the golden altar of incense in the holy place of Moses' tabernacle is that incense ascending into God's nostrils. It's the prayer and the praise of the saints. Better said, it's fulfilled in Christ to praise a high priestly prayer for you and for me when we don't have the ability to pray for ourselves. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that's one thing Jesus never stops doing. Hebrews 7.25, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Can you think about your circumstances right now and the fact that God has His Son, Jesus Christ, in the throne with Him and Jesus is praying for you? If you can ever get a revelation of that, you will realize you cannot fail because Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf. Come on, somebody. Give God some praise. That's wonderful. <coughs> As we move into the internal, we recognize that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all of these things that we're pointing. Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this promise that God made to Ezekiel for him to tell the people, He says, From that time on there will come a time when even the city will have the name Jehovah Shema. The city of Jerusalem will be so filled with the presence of God. Let me tell you when that was historically filled, fulfilled. I don't believe this is something way out in the future that we're waiting to see happen. I believe this happened 2,000 years ago when a temple was empty with the presence of God and a carpenter and a little virgin named Mary walked into the temple to dedicate a little baby boy by the name of Jesus. And the temple that was empty of the presence of God just had the presence of God brought right back into it. Are you hearing me this morning? So Jesus is the habitation of God. He's the primary habitation. Moses had a temporary one. Solomon had a permanent one. But they were both natural and God removed His glory and His presence from them because He said, I'm going to emanate. I'm going to come down and live among my people. I'm going to dwell among the people. And Jesus did that in His flesh, in His humanity. He became part of us. Jerusalem became and fulfilled in its name, filled with the presence of God in John 1.14 where it says, And the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt. Everybody say dwelt. You look that up literally and go to blueletterbible.org and you'll see that the word means tabernacled. 
Jesus tabernacled among the people of God. He literally, Jesus is the tabernacle. Everything, all of that stuff pointed to, it is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. amen. Now, I want you to know this morning that there is a whole branch of ideas out here that, that we can get into, and I'm not going to chase a rabbit about eschatology, but there's something that's been floating around the last 150 years on the theological block. It's the new kid on the block called dispensationalism. And it is what has given us all of the incorrect rapture dates that have come and gone and regularly put another black eye on the body of Christ that literally now has HBO doing a series called The Leftovers. The people that are supposedly left after, quote, the church is raptured. Um, this morning, I'm not going to chase any of that down the rabbit trail just to say one brief thing, and that is all of those issues regarding eschatology are non-essentials of the faith, and we can have differing views about these things in this local church. That does not make a difference in your salvation. What you believe about the end times. Now, what you believe about the end times will affect how you live today, but it's not going to affect your relationship with God. Are you understanding me, okay? Things like the blood of Jesus, the God, God's, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, confession of faith and salvation by grace through faith. Those things are the essentials of the faith. Everybody say essential. essential. Those are things we won't take time to argue over. When you read the great creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, they always affirm all of those essentials, but never do they take the time to say how the second coming is going to take place, what is, whether the kingdom of God is literally a thousand-year reign, what place Israel has in that. All of those things are left up to basically your personal study. What I want to share with you as I wrap this message up today are... What I believe the scripture is saying to us, I'm not doing away. If you want to believe in another temple that's going to be built, that's fine. I personally believe that Herod's temple was the rebuilt temple in 70 AD that got destroyed. I think the end of the world wasn't the end of the world, the earth, but it's the Greek word ion. It's the end of the age, the end of the Old Testament age. And in 70 AD, Jesus slammed shut the whole Old Testament sacrificial system of the blood of bulls and goats that never had saved anybody even in the first place. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, he pointed to the temple and he says, going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they said, when will these things be? And Jesus said, this generation shall not pass until these things take place. That literally happened. Titus, the Roman general, marched into Jerusalem from 66, 67, 68, 69, 70 AD. Jerusalem is in flames. It is ransacked. The temple is destroyed. It is torn down to the ground. A pig gets thrown on the altar. The abomination of desolation takes place. And Jesus fulfilled his prophecy. This generation shall not pass away until these things be fulfilled. Now the dispensationalist tries to put a 2,000 year gap in there and say that that's happening in our time today. Where the historical interpretation that I've just given you shows us that it clearly happened 2,000 years ago. And I know good people who love Jesus just as much as I do that are on all the sides of what I'm talking about right here. Are you, are you all right? 
All right, stay with me because I have just a few things, a couple things that I want to finish. Stephen gives his testimony. And it's really, if, if they're in your notes, I, I, don't, I don't think I gave it, but write this down. If you're interested in studying this out for yourself, be a good, faithful Berean. Study the scriptures daily and see if these things are so. Don't just take my word for it. And please, whatever you do, don't take these prophecy teachers on television, on TBN, and their word for it. Because they've been wrong so many stinking times. If we held them to the standard of prophecy in the Old Testament, they would have already been stoned. Because of how many times they've missed it ridiculously. Every president in my lifetime has been claimed to be the Antichrist. And you know what? If you'll just breathe and keep your trust in Jesus, we'll finish out and ride out this presidency and there'll be another new one in there. And it's amazing. If she gets elected, and whoever you think she is, they'll make the Antichrist the Antichristus. I'm going to leave all of that mess alone. Stephen takes them through a whole history recall about how God brought them out of Israel. And he said to them, listen, if you bow down and worship false idols, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And that's what God did. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern. Everybody say, according to the pattern. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And he said, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So did you. Stephen has the nerve to stand up and preach like this, and it's the only sermon he ever preaches because they anoint him with the ministry of rocks, and they stone him to death. And some of what I just said to you this morning just about receives that same kind of reception. Because the guys who teach this heresy of dis dispensationalism, which by the way came out in the mid-1800s at the same time that all the occults emerged, Spiritism and Jehovah's Witness and all of these various groups, it came out and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the world's greatest Baptist preacher, fought it and said it was a heresy. All this stuff that sets all these rapture dates. Are you following me this morning? All right, just stay with me. I'm going to wrap it up. Peter stands up and he says, you're a bunch of stiff-necked people. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. God doesn't even dwell in houses made with hands or even natural temples. The tabernacle and the temple were both types and shadows of the truth and the substance which was yet to come and to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, first the natural, then afterward that which is what? Everybody say spiritual. So the old covenant was everything demonstrated in natural terms, a natural priesthood, depending on the tribe you were born into, a natural sacrifice, bull, ram, goat, uh, dove, natural blood. It's a natural temple. All these things are natural. But now in the Spirit, in the new covenant, it is all a work of the Spirit. It's a spiritual fulfillment. 
So I want to show you now as we move from external to internal and finally to the last one this morning and I'm finished. Everybody say eternal. Read it with me. The church is the habitation of God's presence. There is, and I'll say it again as I said in the beginning of this message, there is nothing holy about this room. It's holy because you are here. And more so than that, it is holy because Christ in you is here. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You do know that Christ is on the inside of you, right? So His presence showed up this morning because you showed up with Him. If we enjoy His manifest presence, it's because we raise our voices in worship and He moves out of us and fills the place with His presence. Somebody say amen. amen. Listen to these verses of Scripture. If you disagree, that's fine. This is not something that we draw lines of fellowship over. But just see what the Word says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For through Christ, through Jesus, we both... He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. By the way, the Bible says God has destroyed, torn down the middle wall of partition that separated or divided Jews and Gentiles. What dispensationalism tries to do is build that wall back up and tell you God has two different programs, two different plans going on. Let me just say this. My opinion about what I understand currently from the Word of God, I'm not looking for another temple to be rebuilt. We have already have the permanent primary temple, which is Jesus Christ. He is now indwelling the church, which is the eternal habitation and the temple of God. you believe that? Say amen. amen. If the folks who teach and believe this idea actually are able through a self-fulfilling prophecy, to get the Muslim altar scraped off the, the, the mount over there, the temple mount, and build a new, another rebuilt temple. And they actually do reinstitute the old covenant system of sacrifices. The Spirit of God is never going to fill that with His glory because it would be literally spitting in the face of the finished work of Christ who's already died shedding His blood one time for the sins of the whole world. Are you hearing what I'm saying? This is not hard. But yet people lose their minds over that and it becomes politicized in who we should support You know what? Your job as a Christian is not to stand for Israel or against Israel. Your, your job is to follow Israel's Messiah and to be a demonstration of Christ in the earth. You don't just pray for Jerusalem. You don't just pray for Gaza. You pray for peace of the whole world. Do you see the difference here? And all of a sudden this stuff gets politicized. And we're just, we, we're just promoting another warfare state. And the Prince of Peace is just up there continuing to intercede and going, when are they going to get beyond this drivel and this nonsense? I may create more questions this morning than I have answers. And if that drives you back to the Word of God, then that's what my mission is for. Search the Word. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Listen to this. He says, For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Don't look at me and tell me I'm a Gentile because that's spitting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
I am now the seed of Abraham. Matter of fact, I can give you scripture. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Abraham is my father by faith. Are you with me? He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Everybody say a temple. In whom you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The King James says a habitation of God by the Spirit. So that's the church. Let me give you one more. Hebrews 12. You're not standing before the mountain that's belching and billowing smoke and animals died when they touch it. I'm just basically summarizing. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's not something we're longing for in the future. That's you. The city of God is the people of God. Jesus said, you're a city set on a hill. Do you see that? The old covenant was natural. The new covenant is spiritual. Heaven is real, but it's not even really the point. Yeah, when you die, you're going to go there if you know Jesus. But the point is to get heaven into you and fill the earth with heaven. Last thing and I'm finished. Some of you are going, man, I'm glad. He's just been making my head spin today. Some of this stuff I've never heard before. Everybody say, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is present here. Now that thing's on the move. It's mobile. It's the mobile presence of God. I'm carrying the presence of God when I get in my Jeep and I crank me up some Hillsong or some Jesus culture, worshiping the Lord. I'm literally the Ark of the Covenant on wheels. I'm the mobile presence of God, worshiping Him. When you go out of here today, don't lose the the aroma of Christ that's in this room. Don't lose the sense of excitement because you have just gotten re-injected. You are contagious with the presence of God. Take it into the sin and the sickness and the mess of the circumstances of your life this week. Come on, it's not just about, oh Lord, please help me just get enough just to make it through. No, you're supposed to be a conqueror. You're supposed to be mighty in God, more than a conqueror. Come on, somebody. That's what the empowering presence of God is all about. I know I'm a little bit over, but I I think you're getting something out of this. Come on, I'm really finished. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, think habitation, not visitation. See, too many times we have a revival mentality. Oh, God, Lord, we'll repent in sackcloth and ashes if you'll just come. Well, guess what? He's already come. He's come in your heart. And too much of the time is you're living outside of the awareness of the fact that you are supposed to be filled every day with His Holy Spirit. And real revival comes when you just get filled fresh with His Holy Ghost. I like to say it that way sometimes because it just doesn't quite uh, make folks feel comfortable. They like to say Holy Spirit. But how many of you know sometimes you need a good old dose of the Holy Ghost to stir you up and change your circumstances? What is habitation? Why is it different from visitation? Because you start to live out of the awareness 
that I don't have to go to a conference. I don't have to get into a meeting. I don't need to, to call and get 15 people to fast and pray for me. The Spirit of God that I, I, I need to be aware of is already on the inside of me as a believer. And all I've got to do is open my mouth and just begin to give Him praise. And His presence will begin to fill the place. Let God arise and His enemies will be scattered. When there's confusion, He'll bring order. Come on, somebody. When there's sickness, He will bring healing. When there's worry and doubt and fear, He will bring peace. He will be Jehovah Shalom into your life because He is our peace. When you feel alone, He is Shema. He is the present one. He is with you. And guess what? The beautiful difference between the old covenant and the new one is that this Jesus who comes to your temple, He says, guess what, guys? The difference is this. I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. God loves you right where you are this morning, but He loves you entirely too much to leave you in the mess that you're in. He will get down. He will emanate. He will become part of that. He'll get up underneath your problem. He will lift you up from the bottom up. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 3, and I'm finished. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Everybody say a bride. Who is the bride? Everybody say the church. We're not talking about, you know, steel and rivets and, you know, whether they're, whether they're literal golden streets or not. I don't care because eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. It's going to blow all of our minds. But when we're starting to talk about this, we're talking about the people of God. The bride is coming down out of heaven. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the heavenly city. And that is you. The city is the people of God. Look at this. And by the way, that just sort of blows a hole in the whole idea of you going to heaven because the Bible says it's, heaven's coming down to you. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me, maybe I read it wrong. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's, folks, that's the church. It's, it's not Jew or Greek. It's not Gentile. It's not Italian or African. It, it, it's not Indonesian or New Zealand. It is out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue. It's a people called for His name, for it to be the habitation of His name. It is every one of those, and it is then some. And so this morning, as I close this message, I want to say to you right now, if, if you're in a situation where you're desperate to have the presence of God get into the middle of your junk. I don't know any other better way to describe it. If, it's, if you're at a place where it's going to take God to fix it, you already have a bad report, whether it's from a banker or an accountant or a spouse or from a doctor or from a psychiatrist or any circumstance that you're facing, let me just tell you, the presence of God is what you need. You need Jehovah Shema to come into your life. The Lord is here. The Lord is present right now. He's in time. He's in space. He's localized. He brings His manifest presence into your circumstance. Whatever you need is going to get fixed 
If you're sick, he'll heal you. If, if, you're, if you're dying in sin, guess what? You submit your heart to him, he will save you and call you his own son or daughter. Get his presence. By faith, Christ dwells in our hearts.